Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are beginning uh, the second lecture um, of the first week of Freiburg uh, camp or uh, New Church Assembly. It is August 4th. And is there anything else? Oh, I'm Reverend Allison Longstaff. Uh, and the title of my lecture is The Psychology Within Leviticus which um, I think is fascinating because I didn't find out till later or didn't put together till later that all the talks are meant to be about the book of Genesis. So as usual, I'm right on target. <laughs> um, I'm going to put this in my pocket and hope like crazy I don't accidentally bump it off or something. But we should be fine. So um, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. I... I grew up in the general church tradition, and um, the, a, a deep, deeply held sense of the sacred in, in relation to the Old and New Testaments, uh, deep reverence. Um, we were taught that you never, ever stick any book on top of a copy of the Word, and, it, and the Word was sort of better than uh, the Bible, um, and that the angels lived in all the words. Um, and that if I read the word, then I was feeding the angels and feeding myself in some spiritual way that I didn't need to understand. And there's a lot about that that I, I still really like and I don't understand and I don't know how that works with people who don't have access to the Bible and never read the Bible. Are they starving spiritually? That doesn't seem fair because it's just an accident that I was born where I was born raised how I was raised to see this as an important thing. So for years and years, I read the Bible from cover to cover and would just start over again and just slog my way through however much I could get through in a day. And I do remember hitting a point with, I'm pointing at the board as if there's things written up there. <laughs> um, you can make up. What's, whatever's deeply meaningful to you is written on the board. Um, uh, I remember reading through Leviticus and thinking, this is talking about spiritual things, and the angels are getting fed. And so I'm reading it, and I think it's about donkeys and ditches and leprosy and houses and really odd things that aren't connected to our culture much. But the angels are, are hearing something completely other and getting fed, and it felt kind of neat, like, like I didn't need to know, but just by reading this stuff, I was getting nourished, sort of like I can eat a salad, but I don't have to say, okay, this kind of vitamin, you have to go to that part, and this kind of vitamin, you have to go to that part. I didn't have to know that my body would take care of it. Um, so that was my attitude for a long time. Um, when I entered seminary, it was really neat. Well, after I gave up trying to convert everyone in the seminary to Swedenborgian, I thought I would just show them some Swedenborgian stuff, and they'd go, oh my gosh, this is amazing, and I'll convert. And that didn't happen. So it was a piece of me getting over how incredibly special and unique and wonderful I was and the teachings were. And, and needing to go into a place of trusting that God was leading all of these people exactly right within their traditions and I didn't need to fix them. Um, and us, it was a special blow when I did a really Swedenborgian paper for one of the Lutheran professors and he reads it and he goes, oh, huh, that sounds a lot like Origen, who was one of the fathers of Christianity. And my first res my, my response was, no, uh, inside myself. Because 
because nobody would ever thought any of these things before, I thought. And then through going to seminary, realizing that a whole lot of these ideas have been showing up in human theological thought for centuries in different flavors and different forms. So I had to let go of the revelation or however we hold the stuff that Swedenborg wrote being completely fresh, new, unique, never before heard to um, maybe God has been speaking to all people of all time and heard however we can hear it and the way Swedenborg articulated it is a particularly beautiful, concise packaging for certain mindsets who really love it. So that's how I hold it now. And I actually like having the pressure off of needing to deliver it to the whole rest of the world. And, and if I say something that to me is beautiful and very Swedenborgian, and someone else doesn't resonate or go, oh, that's amazing, where did you get that? I haven't failed. God hasn't failed. It's just the way it is. And there isn't necessarily a better worse. And I prefer that. I really prefer walking through life in that energy. So there I am in the Old and New Testament with a Lutheran professor who is saying these Swedenborgian things and looking at Leviticus in a way that I'd never looked at, at Leviticus, uh, all the things I never wrote on the board, um, that I thought was amazing. So I want to share some of these ideas. Um, so Leviticus um, is a book of laws, basically. Uh, it's called Leviticus because um, back in the day, the Christians translated the Hebrew into Latin, and in Latin, it was called Leviticus, and from Levi, who were the priests, and these were the rules that particularly applied to the priesthood. So they're the laws mainly for the priesthood or for the priesthood who was leading the people to help them do their things right. Um, and she articulated it through the lens, or at least the way I heard what she was saying was, um, this, this <laughs> is how we, um, we first put together what is right and what is wrong. This is our first deep sense of how to follow God right. And um, it dovetails beautifully with um, moral foundations. If you, if you study the work of sociologists and psychologists who study um, moral foundations of humanity, and they've named sort of five distinct foundations that we use, and the work of Jonathan Haidt um, says, uh, conservatives tend to value two of the moral foundations the most and not so much the other three, whereas conservatives tend to kind of be evenly spread over all five, and that's a big difference. And that's a whole lecture right there, and it's not better or worse, but understanding that has helped me understand why I'm not agreeing with some people that I talk to is that they're lifting up a form of valuing that I have decided isn't as important. So, so one of the foundations, one of the moral foundations is called the um, sanctity, 
versus unclean. It's like clean, unclean, holy, sacred, not holy, not sacred. And it's what we do in our spiritual journey is first we decide good and evil, black and white, what's in, what's out. And that matches with our evolutionary like tribalism. Who's, who's on our team, who's not on our team? Who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? We do a differentiation, it's like the light and the dark in the first day of Genesis, and we have to do that. It's really important, it's part of us having an identity spiritually. Um, but a lot of these laws are describing, I think, the, the internal work of early stage spirituality. It's what we do do, not necessarily what we should do for our whole lives. So an example, which to me is a huge illustration, is um, the law of the scapegoating, scapegoat. Who knows what that law is? What was that? That's a law in Leviticus. A way you handle your sins. That's right. You get a goat. Everybody puts their hands on the goat, and that somehow magically transfers your sin onto the goat. And then you send the goat out in the desert to die, and that way you've gotten rid of your sins. Uh, yes? How about malachism? Do you know what malachism is? Um, can we wait yeah, to we get there to the end? Thank you. So, so have you ever seen in your life or in others um, where something you didn't like, you projected onto someone else and then decided they were bad and wrong and somehow by rejecting them you were separating yourself from it? Have you ever seen any humans do that ever? We do it. We just do this. We come out of the womb. It's our first instinct. It's how we survive. It's how we feel safe. In the black and white world, you want to see yourself as in the white or the good guys. So anytime you spot something that you think is not on the good guy's side, you're going to try to separate yourself from it. So it's like early spiritual psychological attempts to not see ourselves as evil, bad, wrong, fighting on the wrong team. So, so the, I'm saying this as a way to have compassion for ourselves. Um, God, I don't think God really commanded us to operate this way. I think God, or the, it's just what we do. It's the first ways we're trying to sort out our spiritual identity and the first coping mechanisms we use so it's a, it's a primitive coping mechanism, and we all do it. So, so let's have compassion and forgive ourselves, and also get that if you see the entire Bible as a spiritual journey, um, and Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, we're not very far along yet in Leviticus. And we're headed towards the holy city, where the gates are open wide in all directions, and everyone's welcome. So you're no longer doing good guys, bad guys, the in team, the out team. By then, the dragon and the woman from Babylon have just disappeared. They're not in the story anymore. We've made that much progress. So we're headed towards not needing to do scapegoating anymore. But in the early parts of our spiritual development, that is a way we operate metaphorically and psychologically 
as we try to find our way and be safe and feel like we're on the side of the good guys. Nobody that I might point my fingers at and say, bad guy, if you ran over to them and said, are you a bad guy? They'd go, no, I'm a good guy. Those people are the bad guys. Very rarely does anyone think of themselves as a bad guy. So everyone is in some way or other trying to do this journey and, and is working within the tools they have to feel good about themselves and like they're doing good work. And, and someone who might be standing differently politically is as passionately believing in the goodness of what they're standing for in some way I can't comprehend unless I spend a lot of time listening. But I don't necessarily have that patience. <laughs> Um, as I do in how passionately certain I am of the things I believe in. But I also believe in relationship and finding a way together. So, so there's a tension there. Um, so holiness is one of the overriding themes in the book of Le Leviticus. So if we look at the um, sacred, clean, unclean um, morality value. It is, it is a need in us to have things that are packaged that are safe and things that are packaged that are not safe. And later we get more mature with that. So, so you've got your little child and they're toddling along and they pick up a filthy you know, wrapper of a chocolate bar that's maybe got a little bit of chocolate mixed in with the mud, and they go to grab it, and they go to stick it in their mouth, and you go, oh, no, 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 honey, not that, not that. You're teaching them clean on clean for a good reason. Um, it's how uh, we stay safe. It's how we learn what to eat and what not to eat, what's going to be poisonous, what's not going to be poisonous. Um, and we have to start with rules. The child doesn't understand why. They just are like, if it's on the ground, don't pick it up and eat it. So there's a lot of rules about what to eat and not eat in Leviticus and other places that actually in deep practical ways did help keep the people safe because of the diseases and things that were within some of these other foods that other lands ate. Um, so it's kind of neat that there is, there's a way that the Hebrew laws did ensure a certain healthfulness for that people. Um, but it wasn't about an innate sacredness or evil of the things. And it, it mirrors how we are as, say, children on the playground. So we're playing, and we all have white skin, and some child shows up who's different. Maybe they're in a wheelchair. Maybe they have different skin. Maybe they've got some kind of deformity or a speech impediment, or in some way, is different, our first tendency is to make them other. Um, so, and we, we're like, they might be contagious. They might somehow contaminate me with whatever it is that made them weird. So we tend to bully, push away, push down. It's a defense mechanism coming from this deeply unconscious, clean, unclean, model of trying to stay safe. Am I talking over people's heads or is, am I being too metaphoric? No, great, okay. So, um, 
So that's helped me also understand why, in one way, why children bully. They also bully because they're bullied. And I would say North America, this, this is my opinion, you're free to disagree. My experience of particularly US culture is that it is a bullying culture and bullying happens in the workplaces, bullying happens um, from the bosses of our parents, bullying shows up in our homes in different ways, older kids learn to bully younger kids in different ways, it's power abuse and we have our different ways of reacting to abuses of power and sometimes it's to turn around and hurt someone else and sometimes it's to try to rescue everyone else. But, but it's a dynamic that's been in the human race for a long time but it helps to become more aware that this is what we're navigating. That, that bully, we can't necessarily deal with bullying by having a strategy in one school for one week because it's deeply embedded in our culture. And the, the best way, I think, is to become self-aware of ways bullying shows up in us. And I know that I bully myself a lot and it's taken a long time for me to realize the hard, harsh things I can say to myself that aren't fair or true, but I just assume they're true. Um, and how hard and harsh we can be on each other sometimes as if it's the only truth and it isn't necessarily the only truth. Um, so, but that comes from the sanctity, I want to be clean, I don't want to be unclean model. So, so look for that energy in, in lot, how it shows up in many, many ways. And the clean unclean shows up um, in the religious right. It's not universal, so I don't want to be painting with a giant brush. I have it in relation to trying new foods. I have a strong hesitancy about trying new foods. That's where I'm a conservative. And that's okay. I just like, oh, other people were like, yeah, um, calamari, great. And I'm like, I don't know if I ever want to eat that. It's weird. It's different. And that's that same thing that makes me go, that kid is weird and different. I don't want to play with them. But I was given a morality from my parents and my teachers that said, the new person is scared. Be nice to the new person. Think of yourself in their shoes. Like I was given a a morality teaching that overrode that instinctive clean unclean mm -hmm. and helped me be inclusive of the new child in the classroom and become their friend. Um, and so, so it helped me build a charitable practice. Um, but no one ever said it was more moral to eat calamari. And <laughs> so I don't make myself do that um, because I don't think it is more moral. And I don't judge people who are, have don't have those same boundaries that I do. And, and we tend to have this in all through our lives. There's places that we're, we're more open to new experiences and places where we're more risk averse. And, and they could, I could give you all a test right now that might just be about what do you like, what don't you like, what do you try, what don't you try, where do you live, da 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 da. And then it would come up with this prediction of what political party you belonged in and it would be really, really accurate because it would be mapping your energetic signature of how risk averse you are and how you align with these moral energies, these moral foundations. Isn't that crazy weird? <laughs> but, but our moralities are deeply primitive and deeply emotional and we think of them as rational and we're really good at putting rational arguments on top of 
these deeply felt senses. And so when I was only ever taught that homosexuality was scary and evil and bad and wrong, the first exposure I had to it was hearing among my classmates that some kid was a homosexual and it was a girl who didn't fit in very well and it turns out she wasn't but it was one of these ways of trying to label why it was okay to not like her and maybe I was too and I didn't even know what it was that maybe I was but I sure knew it was wrong and I didn't want to be it whatever it was so that was how I was exposed to this concept and was a very very good general church girl and followed all the rules as perfectly as I could because that's how I was going to survive and then years later, after trying and trying to do it perfectly and nothing was working and I had to give up and give up and give up on having 14 children and all the other things I was going to do that was perfect, um, having my husband do family worship for our family, that was another formula and he didn't want to do it and he didn't want me to do it and so I didn't know what to do. Um, and turns out probably my kids are going to get to heaven anyway, you know, like it just isn't that big a deal, but that was my formula. It was part of the rules that would keep my kids safe. Um, I found out that my sister was in love with a woman, and I had known her my whole life, and I loved her. We'd fought like crazy, and I think it was because we were, I was very, very feminine, or what would they would say, cis, cisgender. Mm -hmm. I was born a girl, and I feel like a girl. Um, and she liked sports and she didn't want dresses and she didn't, you know, and I would like mock her like, you're more like a boy than a girl. And it was my way of trying to shame her into being more like a girl, which was my way of loving her because I didn't know better. But when I found out that she was in love with a woman, I had to, I had to stop and say, okay, I've got these rules that I've been given and I've got my experience of her. It flew away. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. um, it might be broken way over there, but it did. <laughs> it's not on the patio. Um, we love birds. We will hope it is perfectly lovely. And I decided that the woman that I had always known was still the woman I'd always known. She was loving, she was gentle, she was smart. She was deeply conscientious. She had gone to New York City and tried to get fixed because there was an institute there that claimed it could fix you if you were homosexual. Um, and then she, and she suffered and suffered and my now husband was her friend during that time and didn't stop loving her when she gave up and went back to live with this woman who loved her. Um, that was my decision, was like, no, she's the same person, I still love her. Maybe I don't understand, but I just don't think that that's evil. I don't get what the rules are about, but I, I know that, that that's, she's not harming anyone. That's how I've processed it. I won't tell you where you should stand, um, and I don't want to argue. <laughs> that's, that was a, a point, a choice point for me. But I had been taught clean, unclean, and that that was unclean. And I had some scary moments because the first time I saw her in person, I was like, oh, is she sexually attracted to me? How creepy. Because that's all I could think about was, now I knew that she was attracted to women, so it must mean she lusted after me. Well, no, not because otherwise that would mean as a female 
who is attracted to men that I am lusting after all the men in this room and they are not safe. It's like, no, no. <laughs> but, but my imagination went there. It went to the place of most extreme fear. What was the worst possible outcome I could imagine? How would I handle that now that I'm in this new situation? And it was me trying to find a new balance in this new reality that moved the line of clean, unclean. And I think we all are on that journey. And it's, it's neat to kind of just be aware of it. Like when you bump into the, oh, that feels dirty or that doesn't feel right. Maybe it doesn't. Like may, it doesn't mean you should move your line. You can just know that that's the boundary you're bumping into. But liberals tend to have their line in a really different place when it comes to human sexuality, when it comes to what you're doing with your body. And they... They put it over towards a harm care moral foundation. That's one of the five. Does it harm people? Does it express care for people? And that one stays strong in all, in both groups. But the clean unclean can look really different depending on which group you're in. Um, so, golly, I'm going all over the map. Um, but it's huge. <laughs> And it really, for me, addresses right now the political conflict and how completely different certain conservative perspectives look. And my longing is to understand the deep heart longing and fear that is going on for people who see things differently. Because, that, because there is a good there. There is, like, I have a different boundary line around abortion than a lot of people who see themselves as conservative would. But I've, I've come to it, and it's, it's pretty much case by case. But I, I don't even want to explain why I believe what I believe or what I believe. But just it's in a certain place that's different. And there's people that are just like completely all abortion is evil, period, the end. And instead of going, I don't agree with you and why, and I want to argue at you and make you change your mind, I want to hear what is frightened. What is wounded? What is, what is resonating or identifying with the unborn child that wants to protect every child that has a potential to live? Because that is, for me, that's the, the love that's being expressed in that incredible, fierce, protective energy that is so giant that it sometimes will bomb people because it's trying so hard to protect something that's very, very, very small and scared. Um, and I don't believe in bombing people, even if I believe in something. Um, so, golly. This is, this is what I get as a big, broad overview of Leviticus. And when you're reading Leviticus, you, you, it, you could think of it as a description of how our moral code is developed and how it really is deeply intuitive survival things that are, are instinctive, sort of animal, but also spiritual, and gets clothed in spiritual values as it becomes mature. But, but also be aware that it's emotional, it's personal, and, and arguing rarely changes deeply held emotions. Experience can change deeply held emotions. So, I was listening to a podcast this morning, just like 
it was a tag on to something else I like to listen to, and it, it's called, I think his name's Adam. Adam talks to people who hates him. <laughs> so so it's, he's a, a gay guy, he's an advocate of the LGBT, what did he say, QIA plus community was the latest whatever. So he's an advocate for that community, um, he belongs in that community, and he's an advocate for environmental protection, you know, pretty standard liberal values. And, and he puts a lot of stuff on YouTube, and he does podcasts, and he gets trolls, he gets hate comments, and like, awful scathing hate comments and we've begun to see these things show up on comedy shows where where uh, celebrity will show up and read some of the horrible things people have said to them and it ends up being comedy whereas I know if I was getting those things said to me I'd, I'd it would hurt <laughs> I'd let it in whether I wanted to or not so so they'll go you know hey Elizabeth hey Gwyneth Paltrow you're a skinny, ugly stick with no brain, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she'll just read it like that and then look at the camera and, you know, and then someone else will come on and read another. And it's, the, it's kind of a, I don't know, a comedic light response to the amount of vitriol that is showing up on the internet when people are kind of have layers of hiding so they can, they can spew hatred in a way that feels safe to them. So this guy finds out who made the post and calls them on the phone and says, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'd like to have a conversation with you. Will you have a conversation with me? And I think he sets it up ahead of time. He contacts them and says, will you be on my podcast? Will you talk to me on my podcast? We'll do it live at this time. I will call you. So it's not like cold, unconsensual conversation. So he had one example and he called someone who had called him a stupid piece of shit and other things, you know, and, and he says, so you called me a stupid piece of shit. Would you like to tell me more about that? <laughs> and the guy, you know, live on the phone is like, oh, well, I didn't really mean it. And I just thought that your idea about blah, 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 is stupid. And, and I felt as I was listening, you know, like, I do not like this person. I do not like this person. I do not like this person. And actually what it is, is I don't like the things he's saying. I don't dislike the humanity that he has. I just don't like what he's saying. But I, I couldn't have carried on that conversation. And this gentleman, this young man, stays calm and present and charitable the entire time. And this conservative human has a conversation with him where he is not at all called names or hated on or shamed and he experiences the kind rational humanity of this person and he does his best to experience the kind rational humanity of this person and and he says so so this podcast is called um, I you know I call up and talk to people who hate me so do you hate me and he goes no I don't hate you I think you're great and da 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 you know um, and, and I think it's a beautiful example of the delicate bridge building we need now in our culture in, in this country. And, and it is excruciatingly difficult work and I think it's gonna take very gifted people like this young man to do that. And I, I can picture myself listening and listening and listening and listening to try and get things in my toolbox for the next time I'm in conversation with someone who 
is saying things that I don't like at all and I, and I disagree with and, and yet I don't want to get arguing or rejecting. So that's all connected to Leviticus somehow. It's, it's connected to our moral foundations. It's connected to the ways we try to draw boundaries to feel safe and the rules that we have decided are the rules that will keep us safe. And they are sacred and holy in how we hold them. They're sacred and holy in how we hold them. And, and that is my current definition for morality, is those things that seem innately valuable and need protecting. And it can shift over time. That's a moving target. So we talk about morality as if we all know what it is, but, but we do hold things differently. And the question is, how do I work respectfully with someone who thinks you know, such and such is really, really important and needs to be protected? And to me, it's like, that's not so much an issue, but I, I do think we need to keep ourselves from killing all the birds. And, and how do we work together is kind of where I'm headed with the talk about laws and Leviticus. How are we doing for time? We got a while yet? Okay. So the sanctity, this is a quote from um, Jonathan Haidt, who writes this, he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, and it, he's talking about the, different, the five moral foundations and how they skew differently country to country um, and group to group. Pretty much uh, people who identify as more conservative will have their, the, the five foundations weighted pretty equally. Typ people who typically skew more liberal have two that stand out more, much more strongly than others. And they are harm care, like in other words, do no harm, is a number one one for everyone. Um, care for people, don't harm people. Everybody agrees on that. How, we're, how we identify or define harming, we don't agree. <laughs> but we agree that we shouldn't harm each other. The Sanctity Foundation makes it easy for us to regard some things as untouchable both in a bad way, because something is so dirty and polluted we want to stay away, and in a good way, because something is so hallowed, so sacred, that we want to protect it from desecration. If we had no sense of disgust, disgust is the response to something that's dirty, or, or the natural response if, um, if we see this, space as sacred and someone came in and, and threw mud and filth and feces all over our copy of the word, our natural response would be disgust. Typically like, you just don't do that. You just, you just don't do that. That's, that's the, the um, clean unclean value rising up and standing for what we believe in and what we don't believe in and we don't believe in treating certain things with disrespect. Um, whether you can, how you treat the American flag will get people very strongly expressing opinions about what you can and cannot do. And can, if you're mad at the US, can you burn an American flag? 
um, is that should you be go to jail or be executed for doing that? For some people, that it's that sacred. And for others, it's like it's just a piece of fabric. It doesn't actually hurt anybody. Um, if we had no sense of disgust, I believe we would also have no sense of the sacred. And if you think as I do, this is Jonathan Haidt speaking, that one of the greatest unsolved mysteries is how people ever came together to form large cooperative societies, then you might take a special interest in the psychology of sacredness. Why do people so readily treat objects, flags, crosses, certain books, places, Mecca, a, bat a battlefield related to the birth of your nation, people, certain saints, leaders, and heroes, and principles, liberty, fraternity, equality, loyalty, equal rights, as though they were of infinite value. Whatever its origins, the psychology of sacredness helps bind individuals into moral communities. When someone in a moral community desecrates one of the sacred pillars supporting the community, the reaction is sure to be swift, emotional, collective, and punitive. So he does a lot of examining how um, these humans that were disparate nomadic tribes eventually decided to come together in community to be better and safer in community. Because, I mean, what is it? You get two Jews in a room and you'll have three opinions. Um, we don't agree, like even from one person to another, we're gonna hit things that we don't agree on. Just being married, you'll, you'll find that one of us really likes snuggling and the other one really likes personal space or, or one really likes to eat at this time and one really likes to eat at this time. There's, there's differences just between two people. So how we manage to make it work as big, broad communities is kind of amazing. And that's one of the things he's looking at in his exploration of the, the righteousness of morality and how, how do we navigate these hugely emotional questions as a big community. The Sanctity Foundation is used most heavily by the religious right, but it is also used on the spiritual left. You can see the foundation's original impurity avoidance function in new age grocery stores where you'll find a variety of products that promise to cleanse you of toxins and you'll find the sanctity foundation underlying some of the moral passions of the environmental movement and I know um, there's some fundamentalism that shows up with people on some diets and that is tapping into the clean, unclean, pure, impure, how to be safe by controlling what's coming into my body. Um, that, that particular emotional cue. So this is all from The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. Haidt is spelled H-A-I-D-T. We have Laws of Purification, in Leviticus, which again, it's the need to be safe and survive. Lots of laws about bodily fluid, fluids, and this is again something that the, my Lutheran teacher pointed out. She said, 
Think about the saliva in your mouth. Is it disgusting when it's in your mouth? Spit it out into a glob on the sidewalk. Is it disgusting when it's out on the sidewalk? Typically, no, yes. So she was saying things that are inside our bodies are perfectly fine, but when fluids come out of our bodies, we kind of think of them as gross. So blood, earwax, when we blow our nose, um, not maybe so much tears, but, but it was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. But, but we do have like an intuitive response. Like if someone's talking to you very animatedly and a piece of spittle lands on your face, it's a little bit like a, <laughs> and it happens, right? But we automatically think it's gross. It's not gonna kill us. I mean, unless they have some really crazy disease, which is highly unlikely, but we automatically just kind of, Ugh. and blood, blood that's not in the body or not in a tidy container is very unnerving. So there's a lot, a lot of rules about bodily fluids and whether they're in or out and, and what you can do with them. There's a lot of laws about leprosy. And leprosy um, is it's like about breakdown in boundaries. It's a breakdown in your skin. It's a breakdown in how your body functions so that your, your usefulness is going away. Leprosy in houses? What's leprosy in houses? Um, she was wondering if it was like, uh, like if you've got a plastered wall and there's water getting in and it gets all bubbly and dirty and breaking down, maybe that's what they mean by leprosy in a house, maybe it's mildew, but they have all these rules about leprosy in a house and correspondentially, I suspect it's about boundaries. Do we all have perfect healthy boundaries at all times? No! <laughs> and we've gotten pretty comfortable with crossing each other's boundaries and when it's okay and when it's not okay. And, and we have a lot of unspoken rules about what boundaries are acceptable and what aren't acceptable and culture to culture, those boundaries are different. And it can be a really interesting practice just to pay attention to cultural boundaries, cultural rules of clean and unclean. In um, Arabic countries, you don't show the bottom of your feet. Does anyone else know that? And it's, it's probably because usually what's on the bottom of your shoe in a developing country is gonna be less palatable than what might be on your shoe in walking around here or even New York City where there can be some pretty disgusting things but for the most part it's not this deep, you know. You don't, you're not gonna see three-dimensional disgusting on the bottom of someone's shoe in New York City. Um, and that's a clean, unclean thing, you know? And if I were to sit down and have a whole bunch of dog doo-doo on my shoe, it would be distracting. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's manners, among other things. Um, so all of these, I, I love looking at Leviticus as descriptions of what we do in all kinds of detail. And we don't have to even know what they mean. We don't have to go, oh, that's like, that for every single thing we read, just, just to have a, for me, compassionate sense of the miraculous way God leads us through these moral foundations of our existence and brings us along as we are able to be brought. Um, there's, there's, there's one that says, um, <clears throat> it's about uncovering the nakedness of someone else. 
And it doesn't say, it, it has lying down with, but, but it, the main phrase seems to be uncovering their nakedness. And I thought, you know, what might that be? What is that about? Is it really just about sex? And you don't have, you, these people shouldn't have sex with these people. It's probably correspondentially much deeper than that. So nakedness to me is vulnerability. It's a precious, sacred, raw state. And, and, and uncovering means you're doing it too. They're not doing it themselves. So maybe it's like, like toxic gossip. Did you know so-and-so? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I have now uncovered someone's nakedness to someone else. I am speculating, I am working with. The laws around sexuality aren't about sexuality. They're about relationship. They're about sacred relationship that is meant to be navigated with respect. And so if we're looking at a law about don't do this sexually with this person, it's probably not just about that. It may not be about that at all. It's going to be about um, <clears throat> healthy interpersonal relationship and also me relating to myself. So that's an offering I give you because I don't have answers. I just have a lot of speculations and a lot of things that help me read this book. So if, um, and there's one about blaspheming God. The man who blasphemes God will be, everyone will come and stick their hands on him, <clears throat> just like the scapegoat. And then they take him out into the desert and stone him with stones. And that fixes the problem. Impeach. <laughs> what? Impeachment. Impeachment. Um, stoning with stones is, to me, throwing righteous quotes at them to prove you're right and they're wrong, which isn't what the Bible's supposed to be used for, but it is what we do first with sacred texts, isn't it? We gather them to ourselves. We know which ones we like. We know which ones we can use to build a wall around ourselves to feel safe from all those evil things out there. And typically the first thing we will do with them is not just keep them as a fort to keep us safe, but we'll throw them at people, you know. Thou shalt not murder. <laughs> Throwing a stone, you know. Um, it's the glass houses thing. But, but it's what we do. I mean, how many times do you, you say a rule in a kindergarten classroom? You know, everyone hang up your coat when you come in the room. And little Susie runs in, has dropped her coat, and runs over and goes, Billy didn't hang up his coat. We, we see it when someone else does it wrong or doesn't follow the rule but we're oblivious to how we're doing the very same thing. And that, it, Swedenborg says, the very first thing someone does with truth is apply it to everyone else. I should have that quote like sewn on something because it, it's just, it's what we do. It's not what we should do, it is what we do. The first time we learn something, we look outside of ourselves and see the ways everyone else's life would be better if they just followed that rule. And we don't see nearly as easily the ways it needs to be changing us as well. How are we doing for time? One minute. One minute. All right. God wouldn't command us to kill other people. So that isn't about killing people. And I don't think we're meant to stone people with stones spiritually or naturally. Questions? Yes. 
You indicated that there were five categories in this book you referred to. Can you list the five categories? If I can remember them. It's, there's harm care. Does anyone else know them off the top of their head? We didn't read the book. Right. Well, some people might have. There's the clean, unclean. Um, Did you mention sanctity, Allison? Is, or is that that's clean, unclean. This is the sanctity one. I'll write sanctity under there. Oh, authority. Authority. Individuality. You can bet, I bet you can guess how that one falls. Loyalty. Individual, close enough. There's a loyalty one versus thinking for yourself. One, two, three, four. What's the fifth? We could, I could, I could Google it, but everything's turned off Wi-Fi. Um, Height. Jonathan Height. H A I D T. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but that wasn't the point of reading the book. It, it has been transformative and helpful. Fairness cheating. Fairness cheating. That's the fifth one. Oh, that's the fifth one. Thing. Loyalty, betrayal, fairness, cheating. There's six. Six? Time's up. A thumbs up. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>